0: We are working our way through the book of Galatians, and so we are in chapter 3. This week we'll be reading verses 10 through 14. Please hear the word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again we thank you for Jesus, that he was willing to become a curse for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray that you would use your word, to communicate through my weakness, the glory of our Lord Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but every pastor, at least every pastor I know, has his go-to illustrations. You've seen some of my go-to illustrations. One of my um, my standbys is the two-hands illustration where I talk about our sin transferred over to Jesus Christ. And then I talk about Jesus' righteousness transferred over to us. And I use this... Uh, for several reasons. One, I'm very familiar with it. Two, I have seen the Lord use that illustration. Uh, And third, I want you to learn that illustration to have as another tool uh, whereby you can uh, share your faith with uh, people who, um, who need to understand the gospel and need the Lord Jesus Christ. I have another illustration, one of my standbys, uh, that I've used with uh, great effectiveness over the years. And it, I use it to teach the doctrine of total depravity. And we are going to look at this um, this morning. In fact, we're going to use the uh, verses that we used for the responsive reading. And we're going to walk through those in a few moments. But uh, the reason why people don't understand or rather don't believe in this doctrine of total depravity um, is because they really don't think that they are uh, that bad. And so they don't believe that they are that fallen. They don't believe that they are uh, that, uh, or, or under the power of sin to that extent. But the power of sin in a person 's life makes people so willingly rebellious to God that it makes them completely unwilling to follow or trust him so for instance, most people, even most Christians surprisingly, believe that Before they came to Christ, it was as if they had fallen over uh, the side of a boat. And they were in danger of drowning. They see their danger and they call out to God for help. And God throws them a life buoy uh, in the form of an empty cross. They grab onto that cross while God pulls them to safety. And so they fell off. They saw their danger. They called out to God. They took hold of the cross. But biblically speaking, you've fallen over the side of the boat. You have drowned. Your body has sunk to the uh, floor of the ocean where the water pressure has crushed your bones and fish have eaten your flesh. You are dead spiritually. Or we could look at it like this. And people tend to, I've even heard pastors illustrate it like this. Uh, A non-Christian is one who has fallen out of a a two-story building. They've broken their legs. They've broken their arms. And with their last little bit of strength, they're able to crawl into a doctor's office and ask the doctor for help and then the doctor sets their their limbs and gives them the needed assistance. But again, it was them who limped into the doctor's office to receive help. Biblically speaking, I think the Bible says it would be more accurate to say that you have fallen off the Empire State Building That you have crushed the cement below with the impact of your fall. You are spiritually dead. Uh, You have an outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, You can follow along if you want to. But really where I want your attention to be uh, most of all is on these responsive readings that we read earlier. Because the Bible says we are under a curse. Genesis 2.17, the passage uh, that I read first in the responsive reading. uh, God says you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat it... You will surely die. Now, if you were to look this up in the New International Version, it says, "But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die." And it's always perplexed me why the translators translated it "when," when the Hebrew vayom means literally "on the day." On the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Did Adam and Eve die that day? No, they continued to live for 900 plus years. So then what happened? They died spiritually. They eventually died physically because of the presence of sin in their body. But on the day that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually. They became sinners. Genesis verses uh, chapter 6, verse 5, which is the next uh, in the responsive reading, gives us a picture of what it means to be spiritually dead. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the faults of their hearts were only evil continually. He says here, uh, God looked into their hearts and He saw their deepest thoughts. He saw the thoughts behind their thoughts. He saw the inclinations of the thoughts of their hearts. And He saw that every one of their thoughts were only evil continually. When I was... Uh, Growing up and, and for a long time afterwards, when I read this passage, I thought, well, man had progressively gotten worse. That he had just progressed in his wickedness to the point that God couldn't put up with him anymore. But I have a different understanding of this verse now. This verse is not talking about how man progressed or regressed, digressed. Rather, it is talking about man in his essential nature. And this is before the flood. But if you look after the flood, Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So it was not man progressing successively generation after generation towards wickedness. Rather, from childhood every inclination of the thoughts of a person's heart are evil. From childhood. In fact, as Billy was talking to the children it goes even to while you're in your mother's tummy. Psalm 51, 51, 51, 51 51.5 Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Adam's sin was imputed. To every one of us. It was credited, if you will, to every one of us. His sin. Not only the guilt of his sin. And not only Adam's ability or propensity to sin. But Adam's spiritual death. That he experienced on the day that he ate from the forbidden tree. From the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His spiritual death that he experienced is given to every one of us when we are conceived in our mother's womb. So you have a sinful heart from birth. How many of you have intentionally, actively, taught your children to be self-centered or selfish? I don't see any hands. How many of you who have children have children that have exhibited and displayed self-centeredness and selfishness. I'm a father. (laughs) Sorry, kids. (laughs) But that is the truth. Parents, the good news is, when you say, how did they get this way? Well, it's not your fault ultimately. The bad news is, it is part of their nature in Adam. We were born spiritually dead. We were born with a heart problem. And so Jeremiah 17.9, the next verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, some of your translations may say, and desperately wicked. And he asks a rhetorical question. Who can understand it? Well, nobody can. It is that deceitful. If you think that you are basically good in your heart, then your deceptive heart has deceived you. And if you are not convinced that this is true about your heart, then your argument is not with me, but it was it is with God. Because He says that your heart is deceitful above all things. Think about that. Your nature outside of Christ, your nature by virtue of you being born in Adam, your heart is more deceitful than the greatest liar who has ever lived. Your heart is deceitful above all things. And so, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, the prophet asks this question, and again, it's a rhetorical question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or can the leopard change his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It is not in the ability of a leopard at His will, at His whim, to change the color of His spots. It is not in the ability, not in the power of your will, outside of Christ, to do good. Because a spiritually dead person has a spiritually dead heart. Fortunately for us, God is a heart surgeon. And so we see in the next verse that I have listed here, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Why does He say it's a heart of stone? Because it's impervious even to the grace of God. Even to the message of the gospel. Unless God changes your heart. The message of the gospel comes and you've got a spiritually dead heart and it bounces off. Unless God gives you a heart transplant and that's what God has promised to do he has promised to take our heart of stone out and give us a heart of flesh this is what we call the doctrine of regeneration or what we call more popularly uh, being born again God causes us to be born again, he changes our hearts and so in doing so when his word is preached we receive His Word. And we believe His Word. And so this is some of the, the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of total depravity as it is taught in the Old Testament. But it's taught just as clearly in the New Testament. So for instance, uh, John chapter 6, verse 44, Our Lord Jesus says, No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. He says no one is able to come to him. And the word here is for uh, the ability to come is the word dunatai for for power or ability. It's the word for which we get dynamite. Uh, And so Jesus is saying no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. And so for emphasis, he says later in the same chapter, in John chapter 6, verse 65, he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. You're sitting here, if you were outside of Jesus Christ, with a heart of stone, a spiritually dead heart, And you will not come unless God draws you to Himself. Unless God takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. You won't believe unless He works faith in you and draws you to Himself. Romans 3 verses 10 and 11. And I love this verse because everyone quotes verse 10. Across Christendom, everyone knows by heart generally, Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. But the sentence doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, no one understands. No one seeks God. Why don't they seek God when the gospel is so wonderful? because they have a heart of stone. They are dead in their sins. The reason they don't seek God is in their hearts, because their hearts are spiritually dead. They hate God in their hearts. Romans Romans 8, 7 and 8, Simple mind is hostile. That means at war with God. It does not submit to God's law. That means it's unwilling to do so. Nor can it do so. It's unable to do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Not until God sends His Spirit and awakens that person from the dead. So for instance, the next verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14 The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He does not because he is unwilling to. He cannot because he is unable to. Such is the power of sin in a non-Christian's life. To bring this full circle, we come to the book of Ephesians. I didn't have in our notes uh, Ephesians 2.1, but the Apostle Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins before you came to Christ. But he picks up on the same thing in verses 4 and 5, and that is in your notes. But, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even When we were dead in transgressions, and so it is by grace you have been saved. Why does Paul say that we are dead in our transgressions? Well, he's picking up on Genesis 2:17, on the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Paul is picking up on that very theme. And saying, yes, it is true. Outside of Jesus Christ, you are dead in your transgressions. And there is no hope for you. Even if you are raised in a church where the gospel is preached. Even if you are in a home where the gospel is read and taught every day. Unless the Spirit of God comes and makes you alive. But God is rich in mercy, and He delights to take spiritually dead people who hate Him in their hearts, who are so willingly rebellious to Him that they are unwilling and unable to come to Him. Because He is so rich in mercy, He delights to give them spiritual life. He delights to draw them to Himself. And so that's what we see in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And so He says, it is all by grace. You had nothing to offer to God Except your hatred of him and your heart of stone. That is it. But God, because He is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. I say all that, and that is the bulk of our sermon. I'm getting close to closing, but this illustrates Paul's teaching here in verses ten through fourteen. Paul is writing with a great deal of emotion. In fact, earlier in the chapter he called them, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Um, And so I I see him continuing to write with uh, a great deal of emotion. And so in verse 10 he says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Verse 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. But here's Paul's point. He's not saying that you're under a curse because you can try to do the works of the law and fail. No, he's saying you have failed even before you have begun. You are under a curse, therefore you will never be able... To keep the law of God. You will never be able to be obedient. From the very moment you try, you have already failed. Because before you even tried, in your mother's womb, you are spiritually dead and under Adam's curse. So it's foolish to even try. That's why he says in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He says the only way we can live, the only way we can be justified is by faith. And I'll return to that in a couple of moments. I want to focus your attention However, on verse 13. Verse 13 became one of my favorites in all the Bible this week, the more I looked at it and the more I pondered it. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And I love the way the Apostle Paul puts that for us in there again. He redeemed us by the curse of the law. Not simply by becoming a curse, but by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. Something struck me as I was looking at the passage this week. He became a curse for us by abiding by all things written in the book of the law. Our Lord Jesus became a curse for us by obeying perfectly everything written uh, in the law of God. He obeyed God perfectly. Now think about this. The law of God is a reflection of God's perfect holiness. And so in order for us to ever attain to that perfect holiness... We have to be infinitely righteous. That is the only way that we could ever attain to God's perfect holiness, which the law is a reflection, a perfect reflection. Well, we can never do it, but Christ is perfectly righteous. He attained it. He never sinned. He obeyed the law, every jot and tittle of it. He obeyed it perfectly. He was not cursed by it because it says in verse 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He was not cursed by it because he kept it. But in keeping it, he became eligible to stand in our place and to become a curse for us. So he became a curse for us by obeying the law perfectly. He also also became a curse for us by submitting to be hung on a tree. Look at verse 13, the second half of verse 13. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. To understand this, you need to understand the Old Testament law uh, and the execution of a criminal. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so when you are hung on a tree, According to the law of God, um, you're under a curse because what was happening was a criminal or a murderer was being executed, and then, as part of the execution process, they were hung on a tree to um, expose the crime and the punishment of the crime to the public. And by virtue of the fact that they were hoisting that this person's body was hoisted upon the tree, Uh, was saying that they were not only guilty, but they were also under God's curse. And so to be hung on a tree in that fashion was the ultimate curse. But here's what's so amazing. As you read the New Testament, you find the apostles boasting... About the fact that Jesus is hung on a tree, Acts chapter five, verse thirty, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree they don 't simply say hanging him on a cross. Uh, they, say, they use the language of Deuteronomy by hanging him on a tree because they want to show that Jesus was indeed cursed. Or, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We as Christians have a cursed Savior Who was hung on a cursed tree? Compare that with Islam. You cannot say anything bad about Muhammad. But we as Christians boast about the fact that we have a cursed Savior who was hung on a cursed tree. We have people in our country and around the world that love to blaspheme Jesus, that love to desecrate him. They'll take an image of Christ, put him in a jar of urine, and call it art, and things like that. And we get hot and bothered, I think rightly so. But no matter how people have tried to desecrate Jesus, it is nothing compared to the desecration that he took on himself. Because when He went to the cross, He had hung upon Him all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our rebellion, all of our ugliness, and all the cursing that we deserved. Jesus Christ took all that so that He could make an exchange with us. He said, Let me trade you your guilt Your shame, your sin, your ugliness, your cursing. Let me trade with you and I'm going to give you my righteousness. My perfect and complete righteousness. He traded our sins and the curse that we deserved for His righteousness. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, verse 11, the righteous can only live by faith. Trusting in Jesus is not simply getting a go-to-heaven card. Trusting in Jesus is not something that we do once and then we go and live our lives. Trusting in Jesus is living by faith. Living moment by moment, trusting in Him. It is following Him. It is living for Him. It is living in dependence upon Him. And so prayer becomes more important. Because we don't live by ourselves. In fact, we still have, we are still sinners. We, we still will make an awful mess of our lives left up to ourselves. But God, because He so loves us, says, I'm not only taking you to heaven in Jesus, but I'm allowing you, moment by moment, to live by faith in Him. And He will lead you. He will guide you. He will give you the power. To escape the sin that is always so entangling to us, I don't think it'll be before April before we reach chapter five. But that's where he begins to open up how living by faith, uh, how we can live by faith, moment by moment, day by day. Uh, but he's laying the groundwork for us. So, if you in Jesus. He lives with you. His Spirit lives in your heart. You live with Him by faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that You would embolden all of us in our faith, knowing that our Lord Jesus loved us even while we were doing nothing but hating Him and going our own way. He called us to Himself. He willingly went to the cross for us. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things for life and for godliness? Father, I pray that You would encourage Your people with the fact that Jesus lives in us. We can live by faith. I pray in His name. Amen.